0: This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at Johnson at parkviewfindley.org. Now we continue our story following Jesus to the cross. And just to, to refresh our memories, over the past two weeks we've been focused primarily on what took place uh, that that night uh, as Jesus was taken before the Sanhedrin and questioned, placed on trial. They then took him to Pilate, the Roman governor, to be tried, questioned by Pilate as well. Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, another Roman official who sent Jesus back to Pilate. And that was two weeks ago. We left Jesus there. And last week we then studied the the substory of, of Peter's denial. While Jesus was being questioned inside, Peter was outside waiting watching and those who were there with him outside in the courtyard started to to interact with him as they pointed out the fact that that they they thought they had seen him with jesus that he was one of the disciples that also his his manner of speaking his accent made it sound like he was from galilee and and peter denied knowing jesus three times and at the end of that third denial the rooster crowed and we talked about what that what that denial meant for peter and what what acknowledging and denying Christ means in our lives. Today, uh, we're going to come back to Jesus there with Pilate and uh, study through the events that took place uh, the next day as Jesus was taken to be crucified. This morning, we'll be reading through some some significant portions of Scripture as we continue on that journey with Jesus. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 27. Verse 15. If you have a Bible and you want to open up and read along with me, please do so. The words will be on the screen behind me. It'll also be in the U Version app. If you want to use that app on a phone or tablet, open the app and search under events for Parkview Finley, and you'll find scripture and sermon notes there together. This is verse fifteen. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered. "'Which of the two do you want me to release to you?' asked the governor. "'Barabbas,' they answered. "'What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah?' Pilate asked. "'They all answered, Crucify him.' "'Why, what crime has he committed?' asked Pilate. "'But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him.' "'When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, "'he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd.' I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is a significant moment in the course of our story with the crowd outside. Pilate standing with these two men ready to hand one of them over. It's a a very clever ploy on Pilate's behalf to recognize this opportunity, this custom that had been a part of the, the celebration of the Passover, that one person who was being held, who had been on trial, would be released to the crowd, set free. And Pilate allowed the crowd to determine which of those prisoners would be released. He saw this as an opportunity to to let Jesus, who he had deemed to be innocent, go. And yet the crowd was unwilling. They wanted Jesus to be crucified, stirred up by the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin that was standing in and amongst the crowd. They called for the execution of Jesus. Now, personally, I'm worried about the kids of the people in the crowd. Now, I don't think any kids would be up this late at night standing out in front of a Pilate's residence waiting for this verdict to be rendered, waiting for Jesus to be taken to be executed, but can you imagine the feeling of those kids when their parents said, let his blood be on our heads and on our children. If I'm standing there like, Dad, no, shh, shh, I do not want responsibility for this. You speak for yourself, leave me out of it. But the crowd was so insistent that Jesus be sent to be executed, they were willing to take that responsibility. And that, that really is what they were saying. This is a, a manner of speech uh, of that time. Rather than saying, literally, we're going to let the blame and the blood be on the heads of our children, it's figuratively speaking. We take responsibility and we believe it so much that we're going to to bring up the name of our children. But But this idea of responsibility truly is one of the difficulties that's presented to us by the gospel writers. Jesus is heading to the cross. Who's responsible? That's that's really what what we're, we're talking about here. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? The religious leaders saw this opportunity as a way to have Jesus executed and to have no one look at them as if they were to blame. When the Romans crucified someone, they were only permitted to crucify someone who was a slave or who was not a part of the Roman Empire. Any Roman citizen could not be executed by crucifixion. And so for the religious leaders to have the Romans perform this execution would have drawn the attention of the crowd away from them, even though it was the the religious leaders who had put Jesus forward, who demanded that Pilate end his life. They were trying to back away from responsibility in that process. They didn't want the crowd to turn on them. They've been looking for a way to keep Jesus from drawing the attention of their people away from the Jewish faith. They were looking for a way to end this embarrassing situation, having this this man in their eyes, having this man who had ridiculed them, this man who had, who had made them look foolish, this man who had defied them again and again and again, to be taken away from their lives so that they could regain the respect that they once had in the eyes of their people. They saw this as a perfect fit, not only in terms of the situation, but in terms of the, the image that it would have given Jesus in the eyes of the people. There's a passage in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, that says anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse, And so for the religious leaders, they wanted to present this image of Jesus who had claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Son of God. They wanted to present him in front of all the people as someone who not only wasn't the Son of God, but who was under God's curse because of the way that he died. And so this opportunity that presented itself was a perfect situation for them to have Jesus finally to be rid of him and yet also not look like they were to blame. And then we have Pilate, who is certain that Jesus is innocent. After questioning him, after, after sending him to Herod, and, 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 and having a conversation with him after that, he, he's determined that Jesus is not guilty of what the religious leaders claimed he was. He tried to have Jesus beaten and released, there's an innocent man. I know you all think he's guilty. I'll just beat him and release him. Apparently that's the thing to do in Rome when someone's on trial and they're innocent. You beat them anyway and let them go. That was Pilate's compromise instead of having him executed was to publicly have him beaten up and sent on his way. But the crowd was insistent. They had been stirred up by the religious leaders. And the crowd getting louder louder rising in intensity, Pilate was put under a lot of pressure. Now remember the pressure that Pilate would have faced as the Roman governor, responsible for keeping the peace in his region for the sake of Rome. That ultimately was his highest responsibility, the peace. The religious leaders were pressuring him to execute Jesus, saying that Jesus was stirring up the people. They had this crowd gathered around him, and they were in the crowd, getting the people to call for the death of Jesus. And as the crowd's intensity grew, Pilate recognized the pressure that was mounting to somehow pacify this crowd. And so he determined the best way to do that would be to give them the choice. And as he felt that pressure from the crowd, as they continued to call for the death of Jesus, notice how he tried to remove responsibility from himself as he very publicly washed his hands in front of the the entire crowd, in front of the Jewish people, in front of the religious leaders, I don't want responsibility for any of this. This is on you. This is not me. This is you. And they accepted that responsibility. Let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our poor children who have no choice in the matter. But that's the question of responsibility. Responsibility. The religious leaders calling for Jesus' death. The crowd accepting responsibility. And Pilate, who's allowing all of this to take place. He's allowing the crowd to demand that Jesus be crucified. And even though he has a a seat of positional authority, he's not exercising that authority. He's allowing the crowd to make the decision for him. And while we see all of these different Groups and individuals vying for responsibility or trying to pass responsibility on to other people. What we need to acknowledge here is that ultimately Jesus is responsible for his death. If Jesus didn't want to lay down his life and be crucified, he could have at any time chosen another path. He could have at any time called on the power of God. But in doing so, would not have fulfilled god's will would not have fulfilled god's plan for redemption for the world jesus took responsibility for the situation stepped forward of his own accord so that he could take the place of the guilty even though he was innocent so that he could lay down his life to bring about forgiveness that was his decision that was his responsibility and he took it willingly notice that in taking his responsibility He took the place of the guilty, even though he was innocent. Physically speaking, he was standing there in front of the crowd with a man who was known to be a criminal, Barabbas. A man who was known in in the gospel accounts to be a man who had incited rebellion and riots. A man who was called a murderer, who was standing on trial opposite him. And the crowd had the right to free one of them. And Pilate said, which which one of these men do you want to be set free? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ, this man who is innocent or a man who's a murderer. Which one do you want walking the streets among you? And they said, no, free Barabbas. We want to see Jesus executed. And Jesus willingly took the place of a man who was clearly guilty, knowing that in laying down his life, this other man would be set free, a physical representation of the substitution that takes place spiritually for all of us. Because Jesus was innocent, he was able to lay down his life as payment for our sins. Because Jesus was innocent, he could lay down his life and take the place of the guilty. While Jesus knew no sin, he became sin for us and took upon not only the sin of the world, but the punishment that we deserve and allowed himself to be led to the cross, allowed himself to be tortured and killed, to bring about our forgiveness. Now, this is a difficult part for us to wrap our minds around. This idea of of the cross as a necessary part of our forgiveness. Now there are a lot of a lot of sermons that I've heard detailing the the grotesque, brutal nature of this manner of execution. There have been films and plays, uh, passion plays, of the passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, all these, all these visual representations of the brutality of the cross. And we we recognize the the horrific detail As this execution unfolded, even in the gospel accounts, the things that we read that happened to Jesus—they're unsettling, they're shocking, and it leaves me wrestling with this question: Why, Why was all this necessary for God to bring about forgiveness and grace? Couldn't there have been some other way? Why, why the cross? Why, why did Jesus have to submit to this kind of torture? To have his body be torn apart, broken, his blood to be shed? And the conclusion that I've drawn in talking to some friends of mine and hearing their perspectives is that this manner of execution is important for us to recognize that the measure of our sin, that the brutality of the cross is the same measure, brutal, as our sin is horrible and disgusting. And that's an important thing for us to wrap our minds around in the world today, because we, we think about sin as if it's just one of many choices. Even when we're indulging in sin, we we have a habit of of rationalizing and explaining away the things that we're doing wrong. Well, this doesn't hurt anybody. No one's going to know about what I'm doing. There are, there are many things that I could be doing that are much worse than what I'm actually engaging in. And we we have a, a way of minimizing the, the damage of sin. the the destructive force that corrupts and decays our spiritual lives, and yet we pass it off as if if it's nothing, as if it's it's nothing for us just to simply ask for forgiveness later, as if grace were something that's free for us to accept at any time. We very often forget to consider the cost of grace, the price that was paid to bring about our forgiveness. That's, That's why we need this visual image of the cross to help us understand the the weight of our sin and the, the cost to bring about our forgiveness. That God demanded blood to be paid for the forgiveness of sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this manner of sacrifice that he called his people when they sinned to sacrifice an animal to bring about forgiveness. That blood was shed for forgiveness. And Jesus became that sacrifice, that lamb that was slain as his precious blood was poured out for our forgiveness. Now we sing songs about what that means. We sing songs about, about Jesus, the lamb who was slain, about his blood that washes us whiter than snow. We read passages from the Bible and, and we've, we've grown accustomed to these phrases that are describing execution. We've grown accustomed to these phrases that talk about Jesus Enduring the agony of the cross. And it's important for us to recognize how much he suffered. It's an important image for us to have in our minds when we have that decision about sin and faithfulness. To recognize that while we experience forgiveness and grace, while it doesn't cost us to receive grace from God, it cost him significantly. That payment was made. And Jesus was willing to pay it for us. and We recognize the weight of sin, how truly ugly it is, and what it does in our lives, the cost of forgiveness. The story continues in verse 27. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to be crucified. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, if you have been reading in other gospel accounts, you'll notice that in in John's gospel, when Pilate was having that placard written out, that would be placed above Jesus, he instructed them to write, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The religious leaders saw what was happening, heard the conversation. They said, no, no, no. You can't say he is the King of the Jews. Write on that placard, he claimed to be the King of the Jews. Not that he is the King. And Pilate, in a display of fortitude, stood by what he had written. I've, I've written what I've written. The placard remained. And so there, above Jesus on the cross, were these words, Jesus, the King of the Jews, when we look in Luke's gospel, he tells us that Jesus, while on the cross, said out loud, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Even as he was being executed on the cross, he called out for the forgiveness of those who were bringing about his death. And Matthew, our story continues in verse 38. The Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. In the Gospel of Luke, he tells us that one of the the men who was being executed after having insulted him then turned to the other and said, Do you not fear God? This man is innocent unlike us. We're guilty, but he's innocent. He certainly doesn't deserve to die. And then asked Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Illustrating the power, the authority, and the right that Jesus had to forgive sin. The same right that he had exercised throughout his ministry and life, defying what the religious leaders thought he could do. Only God can forgive sin. And yet that's what Jesus did as he was performing miracles, as he was healing those who couldn't walk. He forgave sin as he was healing them physically he healed them spiritually only jesus has that right only jesus has that authority only jesus has the power to forgive the sins of those who come to him in john's account we hear that jesus looked out and saw his mother standing watching and close by her was john his disciple and he said to his mother woman here's your son and he said to john here's your mother and from that time on john tells us that that This disciple took care of the mother of Jesus. As we continue reading in Matthew, we see that Matthew focuses on the humiliation of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. The words that people spoke to him, ridiculing him, bringing up the things that he said before he was hanging there. Even the religious leaders Challenging Jesus, challenging his relationship with God, challenging his identity as God. We've never believed in who you are, but if you call on the power of God and miraculously come down from the cross, now we will believe you. Save yourself. You've saved others. Call on the power of God to free you from this death. Notice how ironically similar these words are to words that Jesus heard at the beginning of his ministry when he had been in the wilderness for 40 days fasting and praying, and Satan came to tempt him at the end of that fast. And he said, turn these rocks into bread and end your hunger. Throw yourself off of the temple and call on the power of God to send his angels to rescue you. Look out over the nations. Bow down to me and I won't contend with you for the people. I will will surrender them all to you. Those are are the words that that Satan tempted Jesus with. And now the religious leaders are standing in front of Jesus on the cross saying, call on the power of God to free yourself. Call on the power of God to save you from this pain and we'll believe in you. That same temptation that was present at the beginning of his ministry is present in his life. Come down. End this torture. And we will believe. That's an incredible measure of temptation. If you'll recall when Jesus was in Gethsemane and he wrestled with God in prayer over the idea of going to the cross and the cup of suffering that he would have to endure, and he made that decision there in the garden. If there's any other way for this cup to be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And Jesus surrendered to the will of God and made a decision to be faithful to the end, to lay his life down. And yet now that he's on the cross, He's being challenged to change his mind, challenged to step away from the suffering, to free himself from that pain. This is the example we have in Christ, that faithfulness is about continually choosing to be faithful. Continually choosing to be faithful to his calling in our lives as we're continually faithful to him. What we see is that there's always a decision to make about faithfulness. That's the power of choice that we have been given. The faithfulness isn't something that we decide at one point in our lives when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm going to be a faithful person. And forever after that, we are deemed faithful. Faithfulness is a choice that we make every day. Faithfulness is is a decision that we're challenged with every moment of every day about whether or not we're going to remain on that path of faithfulness that God is calling us down, or whether we're going to choose to set our feet on a different path. And that decision confronts us time and time again as temptation is present in our lives to to make that decision, not once for all, a decision that we have to continually make about the way that we are going to live our lives, whether or not we'll remain faithful to the Lord or whether we'll choose to follow temptation, choose a different path. Jesus was continually living in his decision to fulfill his sacrifice on the cross. Not one that he made in the Garden of Gethsemane and followed automatically, but one that he was tempted to walk away from and had to choose to remain faithful. It presents for us an incredible example as we think about what temptation means for us, how we can live our lives faithfully obedient to the will and way of God, how we can live our lives standing in the face of temptation, deciding between what is right and what is easy, deciding between what is right and what is selfish, deciding between what is faithful and what is unfaithful. It's a continual choice that we have to make. and We recognize that faithfulness isn't a passive experience. We cannot let events transpire and hope to remain faithful. We cannot wash our hands of responsibility and hope to remain faithful. That's what Pilate did. I, I'm going to let you decide for me. I, I, I wash my hands of all responsibility. This decision is on you. In the face of the crowd, Pilate allowed an innocent man to be killed because he was passive. That's not a, that's not a faithful choice. In our lives, as we face temptation, we can't sit back and, and allow events to unfold around us. We can't sit back and let other people make decisions for us. We have to be actively engaged in the process, choosing decisively to stay on the path of faithfulness if it's the path that we're going to follow. Faithfulness doesn't automatically continue on its own. And Jesus demonstrates for us the significance of making that difficult choice again and again and again. The story continues in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Then Jesus said, oh, the rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and and exclaimed surely he was the son of god many women were there watching from a distance they had followed jesus from galilee to care for his friends among them were mary magdalene mary the mother of james and joseph and the mother of zebedee's sons now each of the gospel accounts as we read through these events provides a different perspective of what took place and we hear Not conflicts in the story, but different things that those writers remembered and reported to us. As Jesus cried out in a loud voice, uh, Luke wrote that Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit before he died. John recorded Jesus as saying, it is finished. Jesus sacrificed himself to provide grace. He made a willful choice to be faithful to God's will, to bring about grace for mankind. He laid down his life. Knowing that at any time he could have chosen a different path. At at any time he could have decided to let that cup pass from him. But he knew, according to God's will, but there was no other way to bring about forgiveness and grace if he chose not to endure the cross. Later in the New Testament, we read about Paul who was arrested by the Romans, and they they threatened to to beat him. Paul stopped them because he was a Roman citizen, and they didn't have any right to exact punishment on him without a trial. That That was his right, to stop things. Before they went too far, Jesus had greater authority than Paul. He had greater power at his disposal, and yet he chose not to use any of them. He could have intervened at any time, calling on the power of God, performing a miracle of himself, simply choosing a different path, and yet he willfully laid down his life to, to bring about grace for us, to provide forgiveness. And here's what I've been thinking about. That Jesus was willing to to give his all, his very life, for the possibility of our forgiveness. Not a certainty. He He wasn't dying to instantly bring about heaven for every person who would ever live. He was dying to give us a choice. He laid his life down to pay the penalty for our sins that we could choose whether or not we want to accept, knowing that there would be many who refused to accept it. He died for them anyway. He died for us, knowing that we would choose sin again and again. He laid down his life. He allowed himself to be beaten and killed, knowing that even though we would accept that grace, We would still struggle with faithfulness. And yet he laid his life down for us anyway. That's the sacrifice of Jesus. To provide the possibility of grace. To provide hope for eternity that we could choose to accept. Knowing that each of us would have to make that decision for our own. And that's the decision that we come to again and again in our lives. A decision that we make to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, to repent of our sins be baptized in his name. A decision that that we want to claim the grace that he offers to us and live a faithful life in him. And yet it's still a decision that we have to make each and every day to remain faithful, to stay on that path and not passively slide away from that commitment, not passively allow temptation to overwhelm us, but to continually choose, yes, I want to be faithful to you. Yes, I want to choose to do the right thing. It's a decision that lays before us each and every day. As we come to the conclusion of our sermon this morning, I want to challenge you to think about the decision that Christ is laying before you in your life. What it is that he is calling you to do as you think about your relationship with him.